So yeah, I forgot to mention, I, I, looking at Gail, I'm re realizing that they just came back this past week, and I heard you had a great trip. It's a great trip, so we're going to look for another opportunity soon for, uh, for you to provide us with a trip update and, uh, and be encouraged. Um, but uh, certainly as we go into our passage this morning, one of the things that we're going to talk about are our evangelists. And, uh, and I think we see that um, at least some of that role, some of that evangelist role, ends up getting fulfilled by people like Gail Cheatwood um, and uh, you know, Rick and Gail McLean, who I just prayed for, who are missionaries out in Brazil in terms of bringing the gospel um, elsewhere. But as we continue in this passage, we look at this passage, and, and I've said last week that these verses that we're looking at, really from chapter Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 all the way down through 16, these verses are very near and dear to my heart. Um, and the reason why they're near and dear to my heart is because this communicates God's vision for the church. If you were to be able to speak to Jesus Christ in person, if you were to descend right here and you were to ask him, what's your vision for the church? I firmly believe that he would quote these exact passages, this, these exact verses from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Because indeed it was Jesus Christ who gave the gifts to the church. And he gave gifted men to the church in order to fulfill its purpose, which is to grow in unity uh, with one another, to grow together as one glorious new man. So this is a very important passage, and I want you to be able to understand this because as we consider how we move forward as Western Avenue Baptist Church, it's very much in line with what we see from those verses. That's where we got the slogan, growing together in Christ, that we are all growing together in Christ, myself included, we as part of the church. So this is a very near and dear passage, and in fact, if you had walked through the front doors, you may notice that our logo now is silkscreened uh, to the, the front entrance. And so um, Tony had worked through some of his contacts to make sure that that got done, so I think that looks great, looks wonderful, and, and the church is now starting to get marked up a little bit, you know, starting to show some, some of our character and who we are and, and what we believe and what our slogan is. So it, it's, um, these are all great uh, changes that um, I, I hope are an encouragement to you as well. But this morning, as we consider our passage, I, um, I can't help but to think of the fact that all of us, we, we love epic stories, right? I mean, we love epic stories. Some of you read a lot of books and, and put them together, and, and, and it tells a, a marvelous story. Some of you like to watch movies. There are superhero, movie, superhero movies out there that, you know, like the Avengers and whatnot, and, and some going back to my days, grew up on movies like Star Wars, which was a complete saga but has been, by many accounts, ruined by the recent uh, movies. But in any case, everyone loves an epic. Everyone loves epic stories, epic tales. But there is nothing more epic than what is portrayed to us in Scripture. And certainly what we love is to have an epic being able to be relayed to us to help us understand from Scripture itself. Now, this is going to be a day in which I'm going to want you to just relax and marvel at the wondrous grace of God. This is going to be a day where I'm going to want you to be able to see just the unbelievable sovereignty of God as he has worked through the church. Because as I was, looked at, as I was looking at the verse 11 and some of these other positions that we're talking about, whether it's evangelists or pastors or, or teachers, you're going to see that it really led me to the book of Acts. And if you've ever read the book of Acts, you understand that the book of Acts is about the start of the church. Um, but contrary to what most people might think, I mean, most people might think, oh, it's just an account of Paul went here, Peter went there, a church started here, a church started there. But when you really read it and understand, especially some of the characters involved and the changes that were happening, it is amazing how God worked through people like you and me and at that time the apostles to bring about the church. And I want to do this because as we look at how the church started, at how the church really started to grow and, and formulate, I think it's going to provide a lot of helpful background to this passage in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. So we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. We're going to spend a lot more time in the book of Acts. And if you've never read through the book of Acts, let this be an encouragement for you to do so. And if you have read the book of Acts, Hopefully, this is going to provide some remarkable correlations that you've never seen before. Because the more that we marvel at God's Word, the more encouraged we are to read it more. Amen? And the more we read it, the more we understand about God, right? 
And the more we know and understand about God, the more informed we are about the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. So I want to be able to go through this uh, with you. And even as we look through just what Acts tells us about the church and how it started, it's going to correct really a lot of misunderstandings about the church. You know, let me give you an example. When I was in seminary, I remember um, someone coming and uh, there was a special class that I took called uh, Pastoral Ministries or Church Ministries, and we had a different guest each week talk to us about different ministries of the church. And uh, one week we had someone come and talk to us about praise, you know, the singing, the, the praise and the worship that we do before the sermon um, gets preached. And, um, and he said this to us as seminarians. He said, um, here is the reality of church. Um, when families go and evaluate a church, um, the first thing they look for, and talk about families, the, your, your normal family, the first thing they look for is whether that church has a youth program. That's going to be the most important thing. The second thing they look for is they want to see if they can connect to the music. You know, is the music what they like, the, the style and the preference? Uh, can they feel, do they feel they can sing along to it? And the third thing is then the preaching. Um, now, as a seminarian and as someone who um, is in the Word of God and really emphasizes the Word of God, um, those priorities are out of whack. Um, because the first and most important thing about a church is what it preaches, what it believes, what is proclaimed. And that is not to say that I am special or important. God has put me into this position by his grace. But as we will see, as we even look through the book of Acts, and as we go back once again into Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, you will see the importance of pastors and teachers and evangelists and the foundation that was created by us, uh, for us, I would say, by the apostles and prophets, and how this is all about equipping through the ministry of God's word. So without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, just review real quick what, where we have uh, come from with regards to Ephesians. And I won't read through all these verses, but starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, this was the call to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Verse 3 calls us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And then verses 4 through 6, we have these seven realities, the theological truths that we all share in common as a body of Christ, as believers. And then going to verses 7 through 10, um, this is talking about the fact that while we're all united on the same truths, we've all been given a diversity of gifts by Jesus Christ our Lord. And the idea of each of the gifts that you've been given is meant that you would help to support that kind of unity. And uh, then at the end, looking at verse 10 right there, when Paul says, He, Jesus, who descended, is himself who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. So in other words, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, reigning from heaven, and he is filling the church with his power and his gifts that we may be able to function the way he wants us to function. So this, you can see how this leads right into God's vision for the church. Because when we go to verse 11 through 13, verse 11 through 13, this is where we see that he gave some. And when he says he gave some, the idea is that he gave some men as apostles. He gave some men as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's a lot of words there, and we will work through them all and help to understand what he's saying there in future messages to come. But uh, taking a look at verses 14 through 16, this is the second half of God's vision for the church. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth, in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, talking about the church, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. That's each and every one of us. Each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you see there that there is a very important purpose from God that you be spiritually protected. And that you also be spiritually edifying to one another, that you help one another grow in the grace of God. But when we take a look back at um, our lesson, you know, the, the verses 11 through 13, I broke this out into three parts. And the first is talking about who Christ gave to equip the church. 
who Christ gave to equip the church. And the first point I made last week was with, reg with regards to apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation for the church. They were for a specific period of time. And the testimony that we have from church history is that after that apostolic age, they no longer continued forward. And uh, just to add on top of that, just for a moment, um, I know some of you afterwards, you approached me and you talked to me about certain individuals who identified themselves as prophets. And in fact, if, if you know even uh, Benny Hinn, uh, Benny Hinn, who's that, you know, he's kind of that quack faith healer. Um, he's on TV all the time. Um, but he's referred to by a lot of his colleagues as an apostle. He is referred to a lot by a lot of his colleagues as an apostle. And so you don't necessarily want to believe someone just because of what they claim to be. See, the reason why people call themselves a prophet or apostle is because it gets them immediate credibility to those who are not discerning. You know, but the scriptures are very clear. We want to examine everything according to the scriptures. The noble Bereans were called noble because when Paul came to speak to them, they didn't say, oh, Paul, you're an apostle, so let me just believe everything that you say. No, they were called noble because they received what Paul said, and then they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. So even in this day and age, you know, what I would say is that if you see someone claiming to be a prophet, you know, my, my response is, well, let's see what you're going to do. Let's see what, because you're not going to contradict the scriptures. If you do something to contradict the scriptures, if you do something to minimize the importance of the scriptures, you are not a prophet. It's pure and simple. And I will say this also, because we know that this is the inspired word of God. Amen? Amen. We know that the Holy Spirit gave us this word. Amen? Amen? And I will tell you what, if you do not listen to a person who calls himself a prophet, but instead choose to just study and understand this, you can never go wrong. Amen. Never. So this is our word of truth. This is the guidelines that we have for truth. And, and in terms of this idea that apostles continue today, this is actually continuing today really with the Roman Catholic Church because that's who the Pope claims to be. The, the Pope is essentially the living apostle for today. Um, the problem is when you look at the history, even at the history of the popes in the Roman Catholic Church, you will see a lot of disagreements between those popes in terms of what they believe. And even at one time there was what was called the Great Papal Schism, uh, which, which, in which there were three people at the same time claiming to be the Pope. And okay, well, if this is really God's will, why would there be that kind of confusion, right? Um, but the early church testimony is that the apostles and prophets, they died out with that original church age because the church, the foundation to the church was laid. But that leads to the other three positions. Um, go ahead and advance the slide a couple of times. So that was the apostles and the prophets. And the other three positions is evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I'll start talking by talking about evangelists, but we're going to see some references to um, pastoring and, and teaching and preaching as we go through many of these verses from the book of Acts, which I'll take you through. First, uh, let's ask this question. What is an evangelist? What is an evangelist? Well, we don't have a whole lot of information. And partially the reason why we don't have a lot of information is because the word evangelist only shows up three times in the entire New Testament. This is one of them right here in Ephesians. Paul just mentions it, and nowhere in this book does he explain what an evangelist does. And then on top of that, um, we have Philip the evangelist in the book of Acts, and we'll learn a little bit more about him and what he did. And then the third reference comes in Paul's final letter to Timothy. His final letter that he ever, ever wrote was to Timothy, and he told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist without explicitly explaining what he meant by that. Uh, but I think we can piece together what this means, because the word evangelist um, in the Greek, it comes from the same word as gospel. Literally, an evangelist is a gospelist or a gospeler, or you can just say a man of the gospel. So we know that this person proclaimed the scriptures. And we're going to see some examples of this because while an evangelist is listed separate from apostles, prophets, and preachers and teachers, I would argue that all the apostles were evangelists. You know, and Timothy, when he's told to do the work of an evangelist, he's told to do it from the position that he has as a pastor, as an elder of the church. And we'll learn a little bit more about that. But let's go ahead and start with a little bit of a tour of the book of Acts, because the book of Acts shows us how the church began. It shows us how it developed. And I think by looking at these examples, we're going to see we're going to learn some rich examples of of, of why we have what we have within the church. You know how God grew the church and worked through various individuals. And the first thing I want to point you out to point out to you 
is in the book of Acts, we have the purpose of the book of Acts right there in chapter 1. The purpose of the book of Acts is right there in chapter 1. When the disciples came together, verse 6, they came together and they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They were expecting the kingdom to be restored. That's not going to happen until the end. You find out about that at the end of the book of Revelation. But verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. But verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So what is Jesus Christ saying here? He's saying that the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, your job is to be my witnesses. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to work its way out to Judea, which is the region that Jerusalem was in. Then it's going to go to Samaria, which is the next region over. And then to the remotest parts of the world. In many ways, this is really the Great Commission being restated to the disciples. And then we see the start of the church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, first we see the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples, which leads them to speaking in tongues. We won't go through those passages in detail. But the, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples. They spoke in tongues. And then after that, we see Peter's sermon that led to the start of the church. He had this sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the result of that sermon was many people being added to the church. And then look at this. At the very end of that passage, um, we read this. They, talking about the church, talking about those who were saved, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching. teaching. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostle teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So this is showing us that from the very beginning, the church devoted itself to the teaching from the apostles. And to fellowship with one another, which is what we encourage over and over. And to the breaking of bread. That can be both the Lord's table as well as just having a, a, a meal together. Getting together and having a meal together. And to prayer. But as we move on in the book of Acts, going to chapter 5, we have the gospel providing, really being an offense to the Jewish leaders. Because Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost that led to the start of the church, they would continue to do that, and the Jewish leaders would get upset. They were very, very upset. And in chapter 5, verse 27, we see this. Uh, when they, talking about the Jewish leaders, had brought them, this is in reference to Peter and John, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and I love this answer. We must obey God rather than men. This shows Peter and John, while they were too afraid to be at the crucifixion of Christ. Well, John was there, but Peter had denied Christ three times and the rest of the disciples had scattered. Now they have the courage and the bravery to stand toe to toe with the council and say, we must obey God rather than men. But notice what it was that offended them. It was the teaching. It was the teaching. And continuing on in verse 27, verse 27, the God of our fathers, this is from Peter and John, they're continuing their statement. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And look at their response in verse 33. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So basically what happened to Christ is now starting to happen to the apostles. They wanted to kill Christ, and now they want to kill these apostles. And verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, and I'm going to explain his significance in a moment. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. So they put Peter and John outside, and then Gamaliel said to them, the, the Jewish leaders, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. Verse 38. He goes on to say, in this present case, he actually goes to explain how there was a couple of people claiming to kind of be what Christ claimed to be, but they were put down by men 
So what he's basically saying is that, look, in the past we've had examples of people standing up and claiming to be someone and then they got destroyed by other men, proving that they're no one, right? And so what he's saying, and then he says here in verse 38, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men. In other words, stay away from these apostles of Christ and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. That's some great advice, right? And this is not even from a believer. Now, this is Gamaliel. And Gamaliel, I have a little note there on the bottom that says that Gamaliel was actually identified by Paul as his instructor. He was Paul's instructor. So this man who's actually instructing the Pharisees, leave him alone, was the instructor of Paul as a Pharisee. He was Paul's teacher. Now, do the Jews pay attention? No, they, they don't give heed to this advice, and that includes Paul himself. But when we go on, verse 41, after, after Gamaliel makes this statement, verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, that being the um, apostles, John and Peter. And look at this, verse 41, they went on their way, but they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So after they had released them, and I actually skipped one of the verses, but they released the apostles. They told them not to do it. They actually flogged them and they sent them out. And the apostles actually give praise to God that they were worthy enough to suffer shame for the purpose of Christ. Uh, that's, that's absolutely amazing. But right there in verse 42, they went right back into the temple and from house to house. And they were teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So you see, the church is founded upon teaching and preaching right from the very beginning. But then in chapter 6, we have the introduction of deacons. And this should be near and dear to our heart because we know we have faithful deacons at this church. Um, this is a congregational deacon-led church, and this is where deacons are introduced. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And this is very important for us to understand how this need arose. Verse 1, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, talking about the church, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So that tells us they were meeting every day to eat, having a meal. But the widows of these Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked. And verse 2, so the 12, talking about the 12 apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect what? The word of God. So the apostles, their main ministry was the word of God. It was the word of God. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this task. And then continuing on in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves, this is talking about the apostles, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. So when I say that the priorities of a lot of people searching for a church are out of place, I'm saying that because from the very beginning, what was most important was the ministry of God's word. It was the ministry of God's word. Verse 5, this statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and other people who I won't name here, seven people in all. And verse 6, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now I have Stephen and Philip underlined for good reason. Because Stephen would be the one who gets stoned to death. And then Philip would be the one who's actually called an evangelist. So this gets very interesting. Going to verse 8, look at what's said about Stephen. In verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. This is a deacon, mind you. But some men, verse 9, but some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So Stephen, while in verse 8, he's performing great signs and miracles. But in verse 10, what it was that the Jews struggled with wasn't the signs and wonders that Stephen was Performing, It was the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is to show that when they were debating, when they were proving that Jesus was the Christ, it was from the wisdom of the scriptures. 
It was from the word of God. And then continuing on in verse 11, then look at what they do. Is this starting to look familiar? Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Remember, Jesus was falsely accused. He was brought, uh, well, similarly, he was brought before the Jewish leaders on false accusations. And then verse 13, verse 13, they put forward false witnesses. Same thing that they did to Jesus. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. This is talking about Stephen. And then starting in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked this question. Are these things so? And throughout the chapter 7, we won't go through his elaborate response, but he basically preaches a sermon to the council from verses 2 to 50. If you were to read through it, and by the way, this serves as a great, great summary of the Old Testament and how Israel disobeyed God in the Old Testament. He gives this sweeping summary about God's plan and his grace upon Israel and how they continued to disobey. And then the question, the question at the end of this is that how does Stephen ultimately apply those verses to the council, to these Jewish leaders. Well, look at verse 51. He says this. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Wow. That is not necessarily a seeker-friendly message, is it? He went through the Old Testament scriptures and every single line of his message you can trace back to the Bible. And he's only able to do that because he knows the Bible. And ultimately he gets rejected not simply because he wants to spread the name of Jesus, but because, because he is arguing from the Bible that Jesus is the Christ, this man whom they crucified. So they put him to death. They put him to death. They stoned him. And not only did they stone him, look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. They stoned him. Saul was actually there at the stoning. And Saul, when I mention Saul, who is Saul? Saul is, we know as now as who? Paul. Okay, Saul is the Jewish name. Paul is the Greek name. That's why we have two different names. He's called Saul by his Jewish counterparts, but by those who speak Greek, he is called Paul. So verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Remember the purpose of the book of Acts. Jesus told the disciples, you shall be my witnesses, right? Starting in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and to the rest of the world. And look what happens here. They are scattered because of the persecution that Paul took place in. That, that he participated in, sorry. And on that day, once again, verse 1, on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You remember when Joseph, in the Old Testament, Joseph said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good? This was evil, but God intended it for good. Because by this action, now the gospel is spreading. Now people are leaving Jerusalem, and they're bringing the gospel elsewhere. And in verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So Paul was very much a persecutor of the church. But then immediately after that, look at chapter 8, verse 4, very next verse. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. And here we are. This is the second deacon that was mentioned, Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. 
So Philip, at this point, not yet called an evangelist, but that's what he did. He went to Samaria and he was, he was witnessing the gospel to people that had not heard it. And then the next chapter in chapter 9, this is where Saul gets converted. This is where Saul gets converted. Chapter 9, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him, from, from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, talking about believers, that they called him people he belonged to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And then verse 4, and he fell to the ground, and a voice heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So he's blinded at this point. And Jesus reached out to this disciple named Ananias and saying, Ananias, go look for Saul and lay your hands on him. And Ananias initially is like, wait a second, Lord, you know who this guy is? This is the guy that's been persecuting the church. Are you sure? And this is in verse 15. Jesus Christ has this response back to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That is the call for Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles. But not only that, but we see there that he must see how much he must suffer for my sake. You're already seeing in these verses that this idea that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous here on earth is not necessarily supported by the book of Acts, is it? In fact, people that stand up for Christ, who stand up for the truth, are the ones who are going to get persecuted. But we must be bold in standing up for the truth. But as we continue on in verse 20, he says this. The, uh, the book of Acts says this in verse 20. And immediately he, being Saul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And how do you think Paul proved that Jesus was the Christ? By the word of God. He was proving by the word of God that Jesus was the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the king that we have all been waiting for. But look at this once again, and you see this pattern over and over again. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. They were plotting against him. And then verse 26, we go on in verse 26, same chapter. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how Damascus, at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So Barnabas brought the apostle Paul before the apostles to show them that he's one of us. His testimony so far proves that he's one of us. Once again, this is how you prove that a person is really a man of God, by their actions and their words. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. He was going about proclaiming from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And he continued to do that in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And then look at verse 29. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But what were they doing? They were attempting to do what? Put him to death. Because you know what? They had no argument. They just wanted to silence him. They just wanted to silence him. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So Saul was sent away in order to preserve his life. And I love this because, you know, you know who wrote the book of Acts? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Luke was a part of Paul's apostolic team, right? Luke actually traveled around with Paul. 
And I love what he writes. I love what Luke writes in verse 31. When I get up into heaven, I'm going to ask Luke about this. But he says in verse 31, so after they sent away Paul, look at what Luke says in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoy peace. (laughs) Paul was such a fireball. I mean, he was rousing up so much controversy because he was so zealous to try to prove to every Jew that Jesus Christ, Jesus was indeed the Christ. He was the Messiah. And they had to send him away. And only after they sent him away were there finally peace in the church. And it says in verse 31, they were being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. But it's, it's hilarious to me that Luke would point out that once Paul left, then there was peace. But then going to chapter 11, chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. Remember that the apostles, the disciples, I should say the disciples of Christ had been scattered from Jerusalem because of the stoning of Stephen. Remember that? They had been scattered from Jerusalem because of the stoning of Stephen. And in Acts 11, we get the first Gentile church, which, which is in Antioch. And look at verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. So at this point, they're going out, but they're only witnessing to Jews. They're they're only witnessing to Jews. But, verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number believed, turned to the Lord. So we're talking about in Antioch, you had... Gentiles, and they were responding to the gospel. And then verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Now, this is amazing. Pay attention. This is, you're, this is unbelievable how these things happen. So the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. When he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were being brought to the Lord. And then verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for who? Saul. And verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This is the first time we get the term Christians. This is the first Gentile church. But think about this. Why are we even having a Gentile church in Antioch in the first place? Because disciples were scattered from Jerusalem, right? Why were they scattered from Jerusalem? They were scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution of the church that was begun by Saul. And now that you have this first Gentile church in Antioch, who does Barnabas go to bring to help encourage them? It's that same man, Saul. You can't make this stuff up. Saul was the reason why they were scattered because he was persecuting them. And once the first Gentile church was established, he's the one coming to them to actually instruct them in the name of the very Lord that he was persecuting that led to the scattering in the first place. I mean, this is amazing stuff. This is an amazing testimony of God and how God is in control of all of human history. He is in control of all things that happen around for us and he does it for his own glory. And so here at Antioch, he was there for an entire year. They met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And then in chapter 13, chapter 13, we read this. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Okay, so the first Gentile church is established in Antioch. And it's interesting that Luke says there, in Antioch, there were two types of people that he singles out prophets and teachers and he names them Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger Lucius and Cyrene and Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul at this point neither Barnabas nor Saul were considered apostles they were at the church of Antioch and as they were teaching it was recognized that they were prophets and teachers and they were being built up by the prophecy of the revelation of God and the teaching of God's word And today we don't need prophets because we have the full canon of Scripture revealed to us from beginning to end all the way to the book of Revelation. And verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, 
The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And at that point, because the Holy Spirit had called them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul and send them out on mission. From that point forward in the book of Acts, they are referred to as apostles. They're referred to as apostles. And let me show you, give you an example of what they did. Chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. Barnabas and Paul, as they were building up churches, they also appointed elders. Verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them, commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what we see as Paul and Barnabas, while they were called to, to help build these churches, to plant churches, they were appointing elders. Elders is another word for overseers, and you will see that elders are the ones who are responsible for teaching and overseeing and shepherding the congregation of God. Barnabas and Paul were appointing elders in every church that they had set up. And then in Acts 20, much later, so much later in Acts chapter 20, what we have in chapter 20 is that at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he's coming back. He's coming back and he's determined to go to Jerusalem and hand himself over to the Jews. And not only that, but from there he would end up being taken to Rome, where he uh, bears witness before Caesar. But in the book of Acts, chapter 20, he wants to gather together with the Ephesians, the very letter that we're in, because he had spent more time in Ephesus than any other place. He had probably trained more men in Ephesus than any other place. And when he gets to Miletus, verse 17, says, From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So there were already elders in the, in the church of Ephesus, elders. He didn't call for the prophets who were there. He didn't call for any apostles who might have been there. He called for the elders. And look at this, verse 18. When they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. What they would remember of the ministry of Paul was his teaching. Yes, he was an apostle. Yes, he had signs and wonders. Yes, he could bring forth revelation from God. But what he points out here is his teaching, teaching you publicly from house to house. And look at verse 27. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says, I explained all of the scriptures to you. I did not shrink back from it. I sought for you to know it entirely, completely. I wanted you to know the whole purpose of God from A to Z. And then verse 28, he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's another word for elder. Elder, overseers, they're synonyms. But look at this, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. In the Greek, that word for shepherd that's the same word as pastor. Pastor, shepherd, comes from the same word. So in other words, these elders were, were, were the ones who would shepherd the flock. They were essentially the pastors of their church. And he says, I want you. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, meaning you are responsible for the church. You are the ones that are shepherding the church. Not the prophets, not the apostles, but you as the overseer, as the elder, as the shepherd, as the pastor, as the one who is going to teach and preach to that flock. Because what he goes on to say in verse 29, he goes on to say this, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And his admonishing, I guarantee you, came from the word of God. He is teaching, he is preaching, he is admonishing them from the word of God. 
And then after that, uh, after that speech, he goes back on his trip to return on his way to Jerusalem. And this is just an interesting tidbit. The very next chapter in chapter 21, when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at um, Ptolemais. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist. Paul stayed with Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven we stayed with him. Remember, that was one of the seven deacons appointed much earlier on. And, you know, after, after the church was scattered, Philip was the one that went down to Samaria. He went down to Samaria to, to witness the gospel. And not only that, but he is the one that witnessed the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. You know the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He was reading the book of Isaiah, trying to figure out who is this person that Isaiah is describing. And Philip ended up telling him about Christ. And they came upon a little body of water and said, right there, there's water. Let me be baptized. And he was baptized. And here we are coming full circle. The whole reason why Philip was, was, was thrown out of Jerusalem to go down to Samaria was because of the persecution of Paul. And now here, Paul, after his third missionary journey, is staying in the house of Philip, the evangelist. And now let me return back to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. So as you think about and hear, and hopefully you're able to follow this, hopefully you, you see just the amazing work of God in the book of Acts in building up his church and the way he operates through people to accomplish his purposes. And we look again at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. We're reminded that he, being Christ, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The start of the church was a supernatural work of God. And he worked through men like Paul, even Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. He worked through the disciples. He worked through evangelists. He worked through deacons. He worked through all kinds of people. But what you see all throughout those verses that I showed you, and there's a lot that I skipped, but those verses that I showed you, there is a clear emphasis upon the teaching of the Word of God. The more you know the Word of God, the more equipped you are to do the will of God. And the more equipped you are to do the will of God, the more you know about the Word of God, the more protected you are in the spiritual war that's going on around us. You see, if week after week, if I come up here and just kind of give you a, a 10-point bullet list of what you can do this week in your workplace or at your school or wherever you may be, if I just tell you things that you can do this week, how are you going to be protected against those wolves who come from the inside that seek to distort God's person and purpose? This is the task that I have as your pastor. It's to help you to know and to understand the Word of God. It's to help you to be protected through your knowledge of the Word of God. It's for me to guard your souls, to, to make sure that you guys are not only properly taught, but you're also properly protected from the rest of the world and from the schemes of Satan. And this is what we get to when we get to Ephesians, that the idea is that the more you learn, the more you grow, the more you end up serving one another. And the more you know and end up serving one another, the more the body ends up building itself up in love. Because the body of Christ is called the body of Christ for good reason. Jesus Christ is the head. We are the body here on earth to do his will here on earth. We represent the will of God. We represent the will of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said that they will know you by your love for one another. And this is why we as the body of Christ, the more we know, the more, the better informed that we can, we, we can act as Christians in this world. The, the better equipped we are to be able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And so even, even this morning as I think about Maureen Lynn and how she was taken to the hospital, you know, I've, I've been talking to some people saying, you know what, we probably need to set up kind of a dispatch team for certain people that may have immediate needs to go to the hospital like that. We should have a team of folks who are ready to be able to pick people up and take them right away when they have those kinds of needs. Yeah, you know, we set up our prayer ministry. We set up the women's group and the men's group for exactly this reason so that we can get to know each other better. So that we can, we can be an encouragement to each other. We can learn together. We can be studying the scriptures together and, and seeing how it all applies to our life. You know, as we come together for the annual meeting tonight, we'll talk more about where this church is headed, where we've come from, where we're headed, where we're going. 
but all throughout, no matter where we go, no matter how we grow, no matter what numbers we have, my goal is this with this church, that you know the word of God so that you will fulfill the word of, will of God. Nothing else matters besides that. I mean, you boil it down, know the will of God, do the will of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close out in a word of prayer. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, what I've stepped through is really an account of how the church started and how all these various positions were created by the Lord our God. But the very important thing that you can't miss from the book of Acts was the proclamation of the gospel. That everywhere the apostles went, everywhere the evangelists went, everywhere that the people of God went, they proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me take this moment to explain to you what that means that Jesus is the Christ. It means that he is the king over all the heavens and the earth. That means that he is the son of God. He is God in fullness. He has existed from eternity past. And each one of us, we stand condemned before God because of our sins. We are all sinners. We have all committed transgressions. We have all rebelled against God. But this man, Jesus Christ, he came into the world in order that he would give up his life in order to pay for our sins. And so the good news is this, and it is incredibly simple. It's that you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that you believe in your heart that he died on the cross to pay for your sins. And in the process, you turn away from your sins, you turn towards God, you repent of your sins, you follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he is the only way. Because no one else could have paid for sins on the cross. No one else can provide an atonement for your sins. But Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he died as a perfect sacrifice for all the sins that we have committed. Amen. No one else can fulfill that responsibility. Only Jesus Christ alone. And that's why it's only Christ and Christ alone by whom we can be saved. So do not leave this morning without talking to one of us, talking to one of the deacons or myself. In fact, deacons and your wives, if you can take a moment and stand up. So just look around. Um, any one of these uh, men or women, um, please talk to them. Thank you very much. Talk to them. Talk to me. Do not leave without speaking to one of us about your spiritual condition. And we will help you. Um, we will affirm to you what the gospel is. And uh, we will show you what to do next. Um, and it's a wonderful thing just to be able to make that proclamation, to be saved, and to have an eternity that, an eternity that can never be taken away from us. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray.